so she didn't see this side of me. And, and every weekend I was with her, right? So I'd meet her on the weekends. We had a long distance relationship, but I, if I didn't see her on the weekend, then it was like, I remember I had one buddy I'd go out with and it's like, yes, I can unwind and let this part of me out. And I'd go to his house and I'd just drink four or five beers and I'd smoke a bunch of pot and I'd just go out to the bars and flirt and just kind of this other part of me came out. It was almost like two-faced and I never understood why, but I looked in the mirror and I always like questioned myself, like, why do you do these things? What is wrong with you? And then I would push it in the corner again. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Ian Koniak. He's the strategic account director at salesforce.com. And today is another one of the conversations we're having this month in May 2021 on this show about mental health and sales, or more precisely, mental health in sales. Now, if you have a good memory, you'll recall that today's guest, Ian Koniak, was just on the show, no, just about two months ago. But today we're talking about a topic actually we meant to cover in his last appearance, but we sort of ran out of time, which is namely his struggles with mental health and with his addictions. Now, just a heads up, Ian is incredibly open and honest about his past struggles with addiction and the impact that these had on his relationships, his family, and his work. We also get into the topic of burnout, why it's too easy in sales to be out of balance with work and life and to be outwardly successful, but to feel empty and disconnected from all of that inside. I mean, I certainly felt that at one point in my own career, and as I'm sure many of you have, and Ian shares his advice about what he's done to bring everything back into alignment, and how he works hard to keep it that way. All this and much, much more. But before we get to Ian, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Ian, welcome back to the show. It is so good to see you, Andy, uh, again after a few months. Yeah, so you've been on paternity leave. How's that going? I'm loving it. I'm spending time with my family. I am focusing on my health. I just got my second COVID shot today. Yay! So hopefully start to go back a little bit back to normal and, and uh, start hanging out with friends again. So uh, yeah. everything's on up right now. That's That's been the nice thing about it. Yeah, it's just to see people and not be as concerned about it. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're not Back to you know full relaxation yet as we shouldn't be, but uh, it's, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. So that's that's encouraging for sure. Well, sure I really is. appreciate you coming back so soon and spending time with me because uh, last time we'd meant to talk about personal topic for you, which we always <laughs> sort of got sidetracked uh, when it was a great conversation. But uh, now in May, as part of Mental Health Awareness Month, we're having a number of conversations with. Uh, you know, successful people such as yourself that have been affected by issues like uh, addiction. And so we want to talk about sobriety. We want to talk about your journey to the extent you feel comfortable and and share some things that can be helpful to other people that are, are listening to this might be similarly struggling. So I appreciate you coming back on. Absolutely. And that's the goal is to help people who may have um, may be able to relate to something they're going through. So start at the beginning. So what what was your story? I mean, what... What happened? So I guess my story with addiction starts when I was probably 12 years old. Um, 12. And well, it starts before I was born because I was like many addicts and most addicts I've encountered. Um, there's a generational element to it. Mm -hmm. So um, my father 
had struggled with with alcohol his whole life. He was an alcoholic, and um, he end, ended up getting sober a couple years before he died. Um, but he died. It was already too late. It was a lifetime of of excess for him. Um, he was 53 years old. Uh, not too long after that, um, my cousin, my first cousin, passed away at 47 years old. He was a Wall Street uh, banker um, and was very high stress job. And he he left four children and a family. And unfortunately, um, you know, all this came came pretty close to home. But uh, I never really acknowledged the fact that I um, had any problems with addiction. In fact, I said, I am not going to be like my family. I'm mm-hmm. not going to be like my father, um, my cousin, my brother, all the males pretty much in my, my family struggle with this. And I, I just um, was always a high performer in, in work and in sales. And so I thought, you know what? You know, this is something that I, um, you know, that I, that I don't have a problem with. And, and what happened is I just kind of pushed it in the closet and, and I kept a lot of secrets. And, you know, because it never got to a point until fairly recently where it affected my family or it mm-hmm. affected my, my work, I always kind of um, made the mistake of thinking I didn't have a problem. And it was only until, you know, I thought I was going to lose my wife when I, when I acknowledged it. And, mm-hmm. you know, fortunately, fortunately, um, you know, I, I've been sober from many vices for for about fourteen months. I've been putting in a lot of work for recovery, and I really do feel like a new a new man and a new person. But I will say, I've struggled with addiction for the bulk of my life since the time I was really probably twelve years old till I got sober when I was forty one. So most of my life. So what were what were the substances? I and mean, what what was sort of your pattern that you were going through? And and I'm curious about several things about. Also, the fact you said you're able to wasn't affecting your work, um, and maybe yeah. it, it was just you weren't weren't able to see that because other people weren't aware of it. I mean, maybe start back at the beginning of your career. I mean, you started your career obviously with an addiction. Yeah, I sure did. I mean, so I'll give you, um, I'll try and give you the the short version. So the substances were many substances. So uh, in college, it was it was uh, mostly marijuana. Um, but then I experimented with some with some harder harder drugs. Um, drugs and alcohol were a big thing in college. And right. Inter- interestingly, interestingly, I just thought that was part of the college experience, and right. still graduated in four years and went to Berkeley and got a pretty good GPA. So mm-hmm. again, I, I was able to skate by and perform without letting it affect my grades or you know dropping out of school or anything like that. And so I graduate college, and I go into. Um, I go into uh, a program and I become an English teacher for a year and I live in South America because I love traveling. And that was my addiction at the time. It was travel. I just wanted to travel. I traveled after I graduated and I was traveling all around South America and I was a teacher. And and there was not a lot of substances there for me to to party with. I always just kind of considered myself a guy who worked hard and played hard and liked to party. And I got to Venezuela and I was a teacher and I was living with a family and it was, I mean, you know, environment is very powerful because I wasn't wasn't with drinkers. There were no drugs and I I didn't have access to sex, right? Those are kind of my, my vices when I was a single guy, Um, you know, sleeping with a lot of women, getting drunk and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, you know, taking drugs. And, and it was something that I just thought came with the territory of being young. So I go to Venezuela, I meet the love of my life at the time. I'm so healthy. I'm climbing mountains. I'm, you know, camping and backpacking and doing photography. And then I get back into the US. And that really kind of started my career journey of addiction. Because right. now I was out without the girlfriend because I didn't um, have money 
to pay for her to come to the U.S. and put her through college. That's actually how I got into sales. I think I mentioned that last time. Um, But in that journey, I went from like freedom and independence and dream job to living with my parents and no money and no girlfriend. So I definitely was working extremely hard. I was under a huge amount of stress to try and save up enough money to support both of us. And And what what were you doing at that time? I was selling copiers door to door. So that's how I got into sales. I started with copiers and it was a high volume, high activity, high adrenaline job, my first sales job. And I was so damn determined to hit my goal of getting her to the US that I carried a lot of pressure on myself and I really did need a release on, on that pressure. And so on the weekends, I would go out and I would I would drink um, a lot. I would drunk drive. I would go to nightclubs in Hollywood. I would, um, you know, definitely continue that lifestyle of all, it started this all work and all play kind of pattern that, that I um, continued, frankly, for the bulk of my 20s. Yeah, well, I mean, I saw it a lot, you know, managing sales teams in my 20s. I got promoted relatively soon, but I was managing people like me and like you, and I was, you know, in the Bay Area, and yeah, I had a couple people that you know, they pretty much wear guys. I mean, they pretty much wear the same clothes four days a week because they would finish work. They'd go to San Francisco. They'd go to the clubs, stay up all night, and come back dragging themselves into work in the morning. And, yeah, it became very problematic for them. Yeah, this was the pattern that I kind of lived. So I, I'd work hard for the week. I would probably keep it on, you know, keep it on the – you know, pretty mild during the week. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I was out. I was, I was drinking heavily. I was trying to go get laid. It was, it was like, I got my self-worth from feeling like I was, you know, the center of attention and specifically women too. I I sought out, you know, I didn't feel worthy. I ended up bringing my girlfriend to, to, um, you know, to, to the United States. And unfortunately we were living together. I put her to college and she cheated on me. And it was it was devastating. Um, sure. I thought I was going to marry this woman, and this time I think I was twenty five or twenty six. I'd been working in sales wow. a couple of years, and that really spiraled me into this um, this dark place. And and I, I, I would say um, a few months after that happened, I actually uh, I started going to strip clubs. You know, that was a vice that I had, and it was very popular in sales. We'd go with clients, we'd go with the the guys really? on the team. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It was it was a That's very so frequent. I never never came up in my sales career at all. Yeah, I mean, I I seen it. It was it was very. It was like something that the guys did after right. work or you know on the weekends. So that was something. I think when I look, you know, again when I look back on it, um, it wasn't one thing, but I think that got me in a pattern of this money, alcohol, and sex. I was making a lot of money. Now I didn't have right. the responsibility of the girlfriend. And it was just this, they, they went hand in hand. The three, it's like that Wolf of Wall Street kind of stereotype that you, you see and you hear. Right. And I was single at the time. So I didn't really, you know, again, think too much about it until I, I had, a, had a very, very bad experience. And I actually crashed my car into a tree when I was um, a few months after I, I'd been cheated on. Um, I crashed my car into a tree headfirst uh, and, and uh, the car literally literally was squished like an accordion and somehow I, I you were not squished though I was not I mean somehow I escaped you always hear this the story of the drunk driver who walks away and you know kills somebody and and, and you know doesn't get injured and fortunately it was just the tree the tree um you know fared much better than my car did but right. I that was my first kind of like you know I I had been um well did anything change as a result of that 
I, I had been caught a few times with pot. I mean, I'd always, even even when I got caught to court, I was found not guilty from like pot possession in college. Mm. So I've always like gotten away with it, you know? And again, this is a long time ago. This We're talking 16 years ago, but right. this is like the early hints of my pattern of addiction. And um, after, yeah, something did change. So after, you know, the, the tree incident, I, I decided not to drink and drive anymore, right? I said, you know, I could have killed someone. Um, I got, I could have killed myself. I had a friend in the car who could have, I mean, we, we were so lucky to walk away from that incident. And so, and you need your car for work. I imagine you're out driving to see prospects and customers. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I had to rent a car and buy a new car and, you know, I lied like a common pattern of addiction. I lied and I, 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 it's interesting, Andy, in, in that incident, I mean, I've just gotten so blessed and so lucky not to be in jail, frankly, and not to mm. um, have hurt somebody in my past. I, I was walking, we crashed the car. We were so hammered that we just started walking back to my house. It wasn't that far from my house, maybe a mile or two. And on the way, ba- on the way back to the house, the police stop us. And they say, hey, we heard reports of an accident. Now, they hadn't got to the car yet, so they didn't have any way to see the license plate or match it to us. And they said, we heard two guys fled from the scene. It wasn't that far from here. Do you guys know anything about it? And they shined a light. They said, sit on the curb. They were looking at the lights. I'm like, no, officer, we're just walking. We're going to my house. And somehow they they got in the car, they left, and I didn't didn't get caught and get a DUI. And and so I, I lied and, and my car actually got got possessed and it got sent to the investigations unit of the police department for a hit and run against a tree. So a hit it was a hit and run property damage is what I got. Was it in somebody's yard? It was in it was in um, you know public uh, sidewalk area. So I guess it probably was attached to someone's house. But that's what they they said. It was it, and I couldn't get my car back because I had to go. Um, see a detective and they started asking me about drinking, driving, were you drunk, blah, blah, blah. Well, I knew, you know, two days later on a Monday, this happened on a Friday night that, um, you know, they couldn't prove anything. So I just said, I fell asleep at the wheel and I left. I didn't want to deal with it. Didn't get caught, hired a lawyer to fight the hit and run charge and walked away. And and that's kind of happened a bunch of times in my life. It happened in college right. with, with the fake ID that I got caught for alcohol. It got caught when with the, with the pot when I got caught. So I just had this pattern of getting lucky where I never had to come out and like publicly, you know, face, face what I, what I had been doing. I mean, was this, I mean, is this something you've learned in retrospect as you've been working on yourself and so on? Is this sort of feeling of invulnerability? I mean, I, I don't think that's uncommon among young males, uh, especially if you're experiencing success in your career. I think I, I learned not to drink and drive. That was something that I, um, you know, that I, that I had been doing a lot and it, after that, I said, I'm not going to do that anymore. We didn't have Uber back then in 2006. No. Um, but I, you know, I, I was, I was, you know, basically not driving. If I was going to go out, we'd take taxis or go with the designated driver or something. But I definitely was still in my addiction. I think that's when I, when I started um, initially my therapy for addiction. And I went in and, you know, unfortunately it was, it was this pattern of every week. And then, you know, the Fridays and Saturdays turned into Thursdays and Sundays. And I was drinking pretty heavily, you know, four days a week, but at the same time I was making, you know, $250,000. I was flying high. So I'd spend money traveling. I'd spend money again, going. But this wasn't evident to anybody that you worked with? Nope. I, I kept it all hidden. Yeah. Wow. No one, no one ever said, Ian, you got a problem or I, I just did a really good, and I, Andy, this is extremely common. So right now, as you know, I do coaching and right. um, I also share my story and, and right. the more public I've been with this stuff, the more people have reached out. Actually, someone reached out today and, and said, I need help um, for my brother. And he's a, 
he's a high-end Wall Street SVP, and he's got a family, and he's in total denial. It's extremely right. common, even at our company, at Salesforce, at other companies, to see high-performing executives that are able to keep it under the radar because they don't either, maybe they don't have hangovers or they just don't let it show. And meanwhile, they're struggling um, in, in, in just in my close circle of people that I know, I, I can name a few that are very top performers that have had, um, had similar struggles in, in, and it's just, that's the problem is because they haven't let it get to a point where it could be known or obvious if they haven't seen like a huge dip in their income or their performance, they think it's not a problem when in fact, they're just living a lie. So for you, I mean, it started coming to a head after you met your wife. I mean, how long were you guys together before you sort of reached this point where you said, look, yeah, I have a choice to make here? Yeah. So so to give you a little more context, so I get married. Um, my wife, bless her, bless her heart, is the most beautiful woman in the world. She's kind, she's loving, and she's a Christian. She's a very, very, um, I would say, devout Christian. And so you have this guy who's been you know, addicted and crazy and wild partying, meeting, meeting this amazing woman who is like, you know, and I thought to myself, she's going to tame me. I'm going to get married. And this is, this is what I need, right? This is the responsibility. This is the relationship that's going to take me out of this thing. And, and I, and, and I she believe, couldn't see any of this. I think I lied to her. So I didn't tell her I still, so just a little, again, a little more context of my woman, um, not my wife. My wife is, is a devout follower uh, of, um, of Christ and she's religious and she is also very, very loyal. And I told her, you know, and and it's unfortunate because I kept these things hidden from her, right? I didn't want her to see me as this, you know, wild man that Mm -hmm. she couldn't marry. So I put on my best face for her. And meanwhile, we're dating and I'm still kind of getting drunk and partying and, you know, smoking and going to strip clubs and doing some of the stuff that I did, but I wasn't telling her, about it. So she didn't right. see this side of me. And, and every weekend I was with her, right? So I'd, I'd meet her on the weekends. We had, we had a long distance relationship, but I, for the most part, um, you know, if, if I didn't see her on the weekend, then it was like, I remember I, I had one buddy I'd go out with and it's like, yes, I can unwind and let this part of me out. And I'd go to his house and I'd just drink four or five beers and I'd smoke a bunch of pot and I'd just go out to the, in the bars and flirt and just kind of this, this other part of me came out. It was almost like right. two faced and I never understood why, but I looked in the mirror and I, and I'd always like questioned myself, like, why do you do these things? What is wrong with you? And then I would push it in the corner again. And so right. um, that continued until I got married. I got married when I was 34. So we were, we're married now. We're going to be married eight years. Um, and it continued that way for um, the better part of, of seven years. So I, I've been clean now for 14 months from right. um, six major vices, six major vices that I had. So it wasn't for me one thing. A lot of people say sobriety is alcohol or sobriety is gambling. Um, for me, it was it was a combination of substance, substance and process addiction. So right. substance addiction is alcohol, drugs, Adderall, you know, that type of thing. Process addiction is addiction to gambling or spending or trading. It could be um, trading stocks. It could be sex. Right pornography. It could be food, video games. So I had a bunch of these things that I always just had to keep doing to like feel, you know, whole. I I just couldn't be in this normal, even keeled state. And that that was pretty much the bulk of my life until, you know, until, uh, like I said, until about 14 months ago. So, So, but the question you brought up Adderall there. So I presume that was now it creeped into your work life though. Yes. You're using Adderall to help 
on work that you weren't doing before. You're drinking separately, but now suddenly it was involved in your work. Yeah. So, so just to be kind of clear, what I what I had struggled with during my marriage and, and certainly before my marriage too, um, primarily alcohol, pot were, were the big ones, but also sex, strip clubs, pornography, um, that type of thing, and then. Um, going, going to, um, gambling. If I go to Vegas, I would be, I would be the guy that was like, you know, everyone would go to bed at, at night at, you know, one, 2 AM and then come back 9 a.m. the next morning. I was still in the table. So it, right. for me, so that was another one. And then video games too, was a lot. I mean, I, I remember t- sometimes for no reason, it would be 11 at night. I played till four in the morning on a, on a work night. I'm like, what is wrong with me? I, it's like, I needed these constant hits to like dopamine. I was right. a dopamine junkie and right. Adderall crept in, um, probably Four, four or five years ago, I would say, um, I, I had trouble focusing and I went to the doctor and he diagnosed me with ADD and I got a prescription for, for Adderall. And it was something that um, once I started taking it, I loved it, right? It was like, I can be productive and it, and it became this crutch to like, I got to work, pop my Adderall. And then I started taking it on the weekends. I got to mm-hmm. do gardening, take my Adderall. I got to do taxes, take my Adderall, right? So it was more of the same, right? I was an addict. Right. That's what for me, I think it's very common for, for people in sales, for high performers where they have this like, you know, you're, you're, it's a roller coaster, and it's, it's, right. it's, you're, you're producing and there's so much stress and there's so much kind of angst and, and adrenaline that's going throughout, throughout the week, especially for, you know, high performers where there's right. high stakes that you need a way to uh, unwind and medicate. And, and, and when you get done with work, it's like, okay, I need something to, you know, take me out of this, this, um, you know, work mode. And, and you're still in this all, all in mode, but it's using right. substances. So that, that was kind of, well, I didn't even realize it. Sometimes I'd go on YouTube for hours. Sometimes like it was, it, it, it didn't have to be substances per se, right. but it was something like process that I had to do just to feel right. like I couldn't be still. That's probably the best way to put it. Well, so I, part of my question I have is, is since you were so high functioning while all this was going on, yep. is part of your mindset is, well, I I really can't stop because if I change this aspect of it on you know the addiction side, it's going to change the performance side. I mean, did you make that connection with the Adderall for sure? I mean, yeah. the, you mentioned that one. That that I, I it's interesting. So I, I gave up initially. I gave up porn in February, and I can tell you kind of how and why, and you know, give you a little context of what what caused back, me back when you were getting getting sober. Yeah, yeah. Right. This is fourteen months ago, and then I saw myself like wanting a drink. Or wanting to smoke pot. And and then, so I'm like, okay, these things have to go too. And then it was like, okay, video games aren't serving me anymore. I certainly am not going to gamble. Well, now COVID had hit right a month after I got sober from all the other stuff. So that made sense. And all of a sudden, like I took Instagram off my phone. I took Facebook. So I gradually could sense myself going to a place where I wanted to escape or check out. And those things that were the easy access things that I became addicted to, those process addictions, including work, frankly, um, I just started gradually putting boundaries around them and, and I removed a lot of the social media apps from my phone. And it's amazing. I, I've you know now come to a place where I, I can tell you that that when you don't have those things to go to, it forces you to really, you know, look within and you know right. when you get in touch with your emotions because you're not just medicating, you're getting dopamine to cover up how you're really feeling. And so Adderall, interestingly, was the last one to go. So I stopped all this in February and then I realized like I found myself craving Adderall to want to keep working, especially right. as I was in recovery and in this really painful time, it made me feel better. And I'm like, 
this is also an addiction. And so I flushed all the Adderall down the toilet, toilet and that's, it's been almost a year for the Adderall. I think it was July when I, when I last took my last Adderall, but it's been 14 months for everything else except the Adderall. So, so what sort of support did you seek then to help you with this, your sobriety and so on? Yeah. So, so to give you some context, um, you know, I had in February of 2019, I went on a bender, right? And I was in Vegas. I was with clients and I gambled a ton and I just got super drunk and I went a little crazy. And I've been feeling really guilty about that for Mm -hmm. the bulk of 2019. And then finally, and I'm a man of faith and, you know, um, recent Christian. and, And for me, um, something inside of me, right, was saying you got to come clean to your wife about you know the lies you've been living. Mm-hmm. But you can't come clean about all the lies because there's been a lot, a lot of stuff that you've hidden from her. And so I started telling her a little bit, a little bit about you know pornography, which again, my wife's a Christian, so that right. in her mind is cheating, sure. especially you know doing more risky things like like what I was talking about, and, right. and I'd been hiding a lot of that from her. Um, and it was uh, when I when I came clean to her. Um, it was what I thought would be a very mild way of clearing my conscience without telling her kind of some of the more extreme things. And it was devastating for her um, to hear that I had been living a lie. And, you know, I, I, I told her, you know, I'd been doing things behind her back. And basically, um, you know, for me, again, I was in denial. I thought, you right. know, none of this counts as cheating because I don't have a girlfriend or an affair partner. But, right. you know, for my wife, it was. And, and, sure. um, and she was pregnant at the time. And, and that was the the my rock bottom. It was, it was, um, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about, but I've talked about it a few times now, but we had to, um, go to the hospital and she was really upset. And she, you know, at, at one point after, you know, I told her, um, this stuff, she, she was shaking and she started having contractions and we had had, she had, had an abortion or not abortion. She had had a miscarriage a year, a year prior. And now I thought, you know, because I, because of what I was doing, that potentially um, she was going to have a, a, another miscarriage, and so we rushed off to the the doctor, and um, he put you know he put um, the the device on her to, to sense the heartbeat, and we thought you know we thought we were going to lose the baby, and fortunately in that moment, my wife um, you know the doctor said. Your 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 wife's okay. There's a heartbeat, and, and I, I remember on the ride there, I was praying the whole time. I said, "God, like, please don't help. Please don't hurt my wife. Please don't hurt my baby. I will do whatever I need to do to to get help." And and so, um, the moment that you know they did the ultrasound, and we heard the heartbeat. I was like, "Oh, thank you, God, thank you." And and and, and I and, and I asked, I said, "Doctor, what's going on? She's having contractions. These feel like labor contractions." And, and he said, "These are stress contractions. Your wife's been put through much so much trauma. Her body, you know, um, mimic labor, labor and, right. and was having stress contractions in her body. It was a physical manifestation of of right. trauma." And I, at that moment, I said, "You know what? It's not just me. I'm hurting somebody else." What, what, the the real the real you know everyone talks about it um, most people not a hundred percent but most people have to hit some type of rock bottom before they decide change, that they right. want to they want to change and so for me that was it when I when I thought I maybe wasn't really hurting myself or hurting my family or what they didn't know wasn't going to hurt right. them that was one thing but then when I saw how my wife reacted when she did know some of the things um, then. Um, that was in the fact that I could have like 
literally, you know, killed, killed my, my son and he's so healthy and, you know, things are wonderful now and my family is wonderful because of this change. But at that moment, I didn't know. And, and I, and I made a promise to God and I said, I will get help. And so that kind of um, propelled me in my, into my journey of, of recovery. Um, not sobriety because sobriety and recovery are two very, very different things. Sobriety is abstaining from something. Recovery is going towards something. Mm-hmm. And so I've been going towards something wonderful in the past 14 months and every single aspect of my life has gotten better. And, um, what sort of help did you seek? I mean, for people that are, that are listening, the first thing I did is, um, Again, you know, there's def- different types of help, but there's there's 12-step groups for everything, okay? Mm-hmm. So um, the 12-step groups for alcohol, gambling, e- overeating, um, you know, shop- shopping, compulsive anything, right. there's a 12-step. So the 12-step program, the first thing I, I did is I went into a 12-step group, um, and it happened to be that the, the guy who um, was leading that group was a pastor, a pastor mm-hmm. for, for a church in, in you know, I reached out to him and I said, thank you. And, and I just like, I remember going on that, that meeting and I just poured my heart out. I started crying. I started telling him everything I'd done. It was like getting this stuff off my chest. I had to get, I had, I, I still hadn't right. told my wife the degree of what, you know, what I had done um, throughout the entire course of our, our marriage and before our marriage in terms of like, kind of, I'll call it living sure. a double life. Cause that's what it was. I did. I, this yeah. wild one came out when I was traveling and she didn't even know about it. And sometimes when she was traveling, that's really didn't happen when I was in LA very rarely. Right. Um, and so, cause she was married to an alcoholic for 11 years. That's the, oh. that's the interesting thing. So when I married yeah. her, I made a promise that I would give her a better life. And so I was so disappointed and upset with myself when I saw the impact that I, my actions had on her that I, again, in, 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 in addiction recovery, the the resources, there's a lot of resources, but I'll give you five that I use sure. very, very successfully. So I went to 12-step meetings. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. So I fully immersed in the program where it was like I was listening, I was hearing, and I realized I was not alone. That is the key, right? I thought I was alone. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. And these are all people, a lot of them, frankly, are successful. They're businessmen. They have you know, um, families, uh, and a lot of them were going through what I was going through. Right. So the, the, um, interesting thing was there was a lot of married men who had had similar issues to, to what happened with, with my wife. And, um, right. it was so enlightening to realize, you know, what, there was hope on the other side, you know, some of them actually had been divorced and other ones had, had, um, reconciled and kept their marriage intact. And so, um, I had that support group. That's the first component you need. I had the meetings themselves. Um, I had a group of guys on my phone that I could talk to, and you know, and and um, you know, just just you know, some were ahead of me, some were right alongside, and some were behind right. me. But that was a big a big element because I didn't have this group before and I didn't know about it. Um, the second component was having a sponsor. So the pastor who was doing um, the meeting ended up becoming my sponsor. It was a huge, a huge um, help for me um, when I was in the thick of it, which which I'll talk right. talk about in a little bit. Um, the third, the third component was was therapy. So I, I sought specifically um, uh, a therapist um, that that was kind of focused not just in addiction, but addiction in the areas where I struggled uh, right. in particular. Um, right. Sex and pornography was kind of the the area that this. Um, 
this uh, therapist was was focused on because that was what had gotten my wife traumatized, like knowing right. about that. Now, again, alcohol, I had a problem. These other things, I had a problem, but I, I wasn't acknowledging that at the time. I was just trying to realize that I, I wanted to keep my family intact. And so right. the therapist, um, the first thing she said to me was, you know, as part of seeing you, we're going to have to do a full disclosure. She specialized in helping uh, addicts reconcile with their families when they've right. been hiding things, you know, right. related in related areas. And, and yeah. bless her trust heart, issues. trust issues, exactly, trust yeah. issues. So she said, "We're going to have to do a full disclosure. That's part of my program. You're going to have to tell your wife everything you've ever done in, in, and during, and before and after your marriage." You know, again, it was like my wife when we got married. She said, "Strip clubs are straight cheating." She told me that. Right. right. So I did that when I was traveling. Never told her. So I'm like, "Oh, great. Well, what what else is going to happen?" So I, I was really nervous about that prospect, but it's the best thing that I ever did was coming clean to my wife because um, while it was the hardest thing, it was to have no secrets and to truly. Mm-hmm be accepted for who you are. Cause that is not who I am anymore. That's who I was. And I, and I right. truly believe that um, it, it's um, I'll never, I'll still have addictive tendencies and I'll still have intensity, but I, I'm not going to those behaviors anymore. Cause I have toolkit. Right. So that was kind of the third, the third element was having a specialized therapist in the addiction that I struggle with. So there are therapists for alcoholics. There are therapists for right. people who struggle with porn. There's those for drug addicts, right? So right. it's all, it's all, um, there's gambling, you know, so, so specialization of therapy, I think is really important versus just, I'm seeing a therapist. You need to speak, right. speak with an addiction specific therapist in the addiction that you're um, struggling with. That was, that was a big part of it for me. Um, the next component was just, um, again, going through that disclosure process um, mm-hmm. with my wife and telling her everything. And, and the cool thing about this is part of the process is a polygraph. So after you go through it, you take a polygraph just to make sure you're not hiding anything, right? Because oh, really? the, the trust issues. Yeah. So I took the wow. polygraph, I passed and it was like, um, you know, it, it was uh, after that she left me, right? Because she was like really taking it all in. She was pretty upset. Um, and she left me for a week. And, you know, you would think I would have gone right back to the addictive behaviors because I was in such a, you know, down place and low. But at that point I was doing it for myself. I'm like, if this was meant to be, this is a consequence of my own actions. She can choose mm-hmm. to stay with me because of what she knows, but because of what she doesn't know. Right. Or she can choose right. to stay with me because I'm being honest with her and she accepts that. And I'm not going right. to live a lie and carry anything. So I said, I will tell her even the, the smallest things. I mean, it's so, it's so shameful to say, but I was in this party mode where I would go to like bachelor parties with friends. We're all kind of getting married um, around the same time and we'd go dancing and I would take off my wedding ring. doesn't seem like, oh my God, you're committing a cardinal sin, but the fact that I wanted to be, it's pretty bad, right? Right. There's bad intention there. The fact that I literally went dancing and didn't want it to be perceived as single. So people would dance with me or look at me differently. It tells you what kind of place I was in. I was still this kid, this, this boy that wanted attention and wanted to feel like, you know, a badass. And, and that was kind of the pattern of the addiction I had, you know, it was this combination of like, you know, going big and feeling like the life of the party and getting attention. And, um, and, and it's, it's very, very common. I've seen this again with a lot of married men that, you know, try to put on their night nights and go out and, you know, act like they're, they're kids. And, and, and it's, it's sad because now I, I'm on the other side of it and I almost can't relate to the person who was doing those things. But that's the kind of example that I told my wife, I told her exactly what I did, every little detail. You know, there was one time I got a phone number. I, I never physically 
had sex or had girlfriends or anything like that. But I, I did these things that were completely out of integrity with my marriage that a single guy would do. And, and I told her everything and, you know, it was hard for her. But once she knew that I was committed to change and once she saw me every week going to my meetings, going to therapy every week, I never miss a sponsor call. Call. I still haven't to this day. It's been 14 months. I've taken on sponsees now, people mm-hmm. that have, have. So that's all part of the program. The program is, you know, I think I'm a big believer in 12-step combined with therapy, combined with having right. a sponsor. Where I see people fail is they might go to one meeting and they say, oh, I can't relate to these people. And then they stop because right. they're not ready yet. So I, I put my ego at the door and I and I um in the other element is, is faith, right? So the, the big thing for me, Andy, that, that got me sober and that helped me stay sober is the concept of letting go and letting God. And and for me, I had this belief that I knew best and I mm-hmm. knew what I was doing and I can handle it and I can control control it. And once I came to terms that I couldn't, and I said, God, please help me, please remove these desires, please remove the, you know, these these character traits is what they're called in the fourth step or character flaws, right? These um, right. character flaws, please help remove them. Um, I, I have not had the temptation. I really haven't had the temptation to get drunk. I haven't, and you can call it a miracle, but I do believe what you truly feel in your heart and what you feel with faith will happen. And for me, that's been a huge part of my journey. And, and it's any 12-step program, you have to give it to your higher power, whatever it is that you believe in, um, right. in order for the program to work. You have to have faith that somebody can do it for you versus you just relying on yourself, which hasn't worked up to that point, or you wouldn't be right. in this situation. So a question for you then is, is yeah, you, thank you. I mean, you've been so open and sharing here on, on the program today is, is, you know, it's gonna be hard. I mean, there was a survey that was out uh, that I saw that only 40% of salespeople feel comfortable talking about these issues with somebody at work. Um, you know, there's such a stigma still associated with, with even though a large number of people suffer from this, these tough challenges, is no one wants to talk about, it, to your point. Is, is how did you feel comfortable sort of deciding, okay, well, I need to share my experiences so other people can learn from these and perhaps benefit? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm comfortable. I mean, I was. I talked to my wife about going on the show because I know there's a lot of listeners, and I, I've been on a couple podcasts where I've really gotten detailed on on my story. Um, but for me, um, I've come to a point in my life, Andy, where I've proven everything I need to prove. I've I've been number one in sales. I've been able to you know create a life for myself and accumulate wealth that has set me up for you know long term security. I've been able mm-hmm. to accomplish the things that I set out to do. But what I was never doing in, in my success was, was serving and helping other people. You know, I could argue I was helping my customers, sure, with their business challenges. But, but right. the truth is that I was very selfish. And I think most addicts are very selfish. And the way I look at it, if not me, then who? Who else is going to go out and share publicly? I have a lot of people that look up to me, a lot. I, I put out a video on you know, LinkedIn, it'll get five to 15,000 views and I'll get, you know, 50 people commenting or, you know, writing me. And this is part of who I am, right? This is never something that I want to lock away because I know firsthand that there are a lot of salespeople who have struggles in their marriages, who are living, you know, secret lives. And and I I mean this, like honesty Mm -hmm. is the answer, not having secrets. If you have things that you're ashamed of that you're hiding from your partner, I don't care what it is. There's a problem there. 
for me, that has been a huge part of my um, recovery is being fully and rigorously honest with, mm-hmm. with myself and with, with my wife. And I, I just hope that people um, who are listening and people who know me couldn't say, you know what, this guy who, you know, I look up to in, in, in the sales world and cause he's been performing it. So um, such a high level is, is just like me, you know, as human, we, we are all um, broken to some degree. We all have oh, yeah. challenges. And if no one's talking about it, then it's, it's just going to exacerbate the problem. And people think they're alone and they're not. It doesn't have to be alcohol or sex. It could be shopping. It could be work. It could be needing just to, to it could be social media. That's a huge one now, needing recognition, right. right? There's so many process addictions and substance addictions, and there's other addictions. There's there's feeling addictions, which is being addicted to love or fear or rage. There's compulsive attachment, staying with people, you know, codependency, co-addictions, right? right. This whole world, not a lot of people talk about, but I'd say more people than not actually have something that would fall into one of those four categories. And oh, yeah, statistically, yeah, large, but three quarters, I think, of American adults at some point have some mental health crisis that yeah. requires attention. Yeah. yeah, I can't speak to depression. I can't speak to anxiety or panic or anything like that. I can speak to people that are performing really, really well, but have secrets that they're ashamed of, that they know they need to get help with, that they don't know where to go. Because that was me. I always thought I can do it on my own because I've done everything else on my own. But this was the one thing I couldn't shake. So once for me, I got help. Once I admitted that I needed help and committed fully to to putting my ego aside and doing what I was told to do from my therapist and from my sponsor and working the steps and just really um, humbling myself in, in, in this, uh, in this journey, that's when I truly saw this amazing growth. And and frankly, I could not and would not be doing the things I'm doing now. Had I still been living that other life because I am free. I am, I'm not carrying this ball and chain of like the secret that, you know, that I carried with me for most of my life. Well, a question for you is, is, I mean, you're talking about your high functioning and, and so on throughout all the addictions, but at some point, the wheels are going to come off. It seems like, right? They do. I mean, when I almost lost my family, it can't. It can't be sustained forever. I mean, I, I know there are people listening and thinking, a younger version's preview, perhaps thinking, "Oh yeah, I've got this. You know, everything's okay. I got this." But I think there's only one guarantee: is is the wheels do come off at some point. They will come off if they haven't already. I promise you that, right? I I went for my whole life. You can say argue from twelve to to 40 years old, so 28 years living with various types of addictions that were manageable, right? Um, the first step is admitting that our, we had lost control and that our lives are not manageable. That's like the first first step is like admitting we are powerless over addiction and our lives have become unmanageable. So until you're ready to say, you know what, that's the problem is if you're not hitting that place, and I, and I, I hate to say this, but it almost like has to happen. You have to get to a place where shit falls apart or you hurt somebody or, you know, you hear about all the time, the drunk driver who killed somebody or, you know, nearly killed himself. The person who loses their job because they have porn on their computer at work. The the person that, you know, um, 
you know, basically drinks at work, drunk at the Christmas party and did something stupid. You hear about all the time. And that's unfortunately most of the time what I've seen in my program. People have to hit some type of rock bottom where they have a rude awakening. And for people that may not be there yet, I, I, I would just say if your gut tells you you have a problem, if you feel like you're out of integrity with something you're doing, that is the problem. True alignment and true congruence in life and being the right. best person you can be means that you are living an aligned life every single day. And I can say that. You know what? I'm not perfect. That's for sure. I still have my flaws, right. but I am not living a lie. I don't have behaviors that are out of integrity with who I am. The worst I can do right. is, you know, maybe be snappy or short, you know, have a long day or, you know, just, just get a little overwhelmed with things. But that's all of us, right? But I'm not all doing right. any of those things that, that I was doing before. I don't lie. I'm open about who I am and, and my struggles. And I think for for people that haven't hit that rock bottom, think about how you feel after you've done that thing that you're ashamed of or that pattern. Think about that pattern of, of behavior. And every time you say, you know, I shouldn't do this, and then you do it again, who are you hurting? Who are you really hurting, right? Um, I have single guys that uh, I, I see all the time, and it's very common now, very common, Andy, um, and it's unfortunate, but I, I know a bunch of um, executives that are single that are like tech founders and that type, and they are literally um, going on Tinder and, and the dating apps and just hooking up with different women every single um, week, and they're addicted to that, right? This this right. this playboy lifestyle. It's another form right. of an addiction, right? So the the they don't think they're hurting someone, but they're hurting themselves because they're not able to experience the joy of having a family, having deep connection. Connection is the antidote, the the, the cure for addiction, right? Because addiction is you feel alone, you feel isolated, you want to medicate. It's only you. No one understands, right? Connection is when, you know what? I, I have other people I can share this with who accept me, who love me. I have a family. I have kids. And, and that's what I have in abundance every day now is lots of connection. Right, and you mentioned this is yeah. Social media exacerbates the loneliness and the lack of connection. You're right. You may have a lot of followers, you may have a lot of friends, or whatever on on whichever platform. But you know the research is pretty clear: is it's it's not connection. It may be called a connection, but it's not it's not connection. It's not real human connection. Absolutely, it's just dopamine. It's like I feel all this perfect selfie, and all these people love it. It's like it's another. It is. It is absolutely another form of addiction. Video games too. You know, you might feel connected with other people you're playing, but you go there. It's all the same thing, right? It's all how do we cope in healthy ways? And I'd love to talk about that because I think that is the cure, right? Connection, but also coping strategies, coping mechanisms. You have to remember, I gave up six things, right? So I didn't have. If you count social media, really eight. Um, cause I got rid of my Instagram and Facebook accounts on my phone. Right. Um, and, and I had to, at those times when I was feeling anxious or stressed or overwhelmed, I had to find something healthy. And so that's where I've been for 14 months is like basically fueling that kind of positive, um, we call it outer circle behavior in in my program, right. like things you want to go to. You don't want to be in the inner circle. You want to be in the outer circle. Middle, middle circles, like middle circles, like yellow light. Uh, outer circles, green light and red and inner circles, red light. You don't want to go near that. So I live in the outer circle for most of the day, which is, which is awesome. Good. Well, I mean, it's fantastic to hear. So unfortunately we just have a few minutes left, but um, final words of wisdom for people and advice is, is somebody that's listening to this thinking, yeah, that sounds a little bit like me. One thing they could do right now to make a difference. You have to, um, 
Well, if you're if you feel like my story sounds like you, I'd say get help first and foremost. That's the first thing. Um, but the broader picture is healthy coping strategies are everything with recovery. So for me, every day I make time to exercise. I make time to pray. I make time to connect. I have lunch with wife, my wife every day. I turn off. I set boundaries. I turn off my work. I turn off my um, you know work mode at 6 p.m. I'm cooking with my family. I'm playing with my kids. I'm with my wife. We're bonding, right? So I think I think you know, it's really important to think about the things that make you happy and give you joy that are healthy, you know, taking walks, exercising, playing music, right. spending time with your loved ones, connecting with people that you've, you've missed and, and try and, and when you're in that moment of like, I want to go to this other thing that feels like immediately comforting. Instead, think about, you know, what, what would really give you long-term comfort versus that short-term comfort. Then you feel bad about yourself all day because you've just watched four hours of Netflix and, you know, you <laughs> neglected those things you want to do. So it, it, it spans it spans the gamut. But learn to, to help, learning to cope in healthy ways is, is critical and, and also getting help in the specific areas that you're, you're struggling. Um, could be any of the stuff that I mentioned. It could be something completely different, right? But for... for um, for every person, I promise you, there's a thousand others just like you that are willing to help and to walk with you and share um, share their story and, and be an inspiration for you. Because I, I can promise you, it is better on the other side. There is nothing more fulfilling and joyful than being able to say, I am proud of myself and I have nothing to hide. And, and that is the, the feeling that I, I've had the past 14 months. More Love proud it. of this than any of my sales accomplishments and anything else in life is being able to face my demons and, and, you know, be the man now that, that I've always was meant to be and that God wanted to be. So it is better on the other side, but you're going to have to um, get real and admit that you have a problem and, and seek help or else, you know, you'll never, you'll never get where you want to go and what you're seeking elsewhere. All right, Ian, thank you so much for spending the time with us. That's been, wow, a journey, man. Congratulations on your 14 months of sobriety and your, your child, your new child. We're just getting started, Andy, and I, I love love going on your show. And, and thanks for bringing this topic to light. Um, and thanks for shining light in an area which others are, may not be willing to do. It's really important. Anyone who, who was moved or wants to know where to get help, just send me a DM on LinkedIn. I'm, I have a soft spot in my heart to talk to people who are struggling in this area, and I do it Excellent. every day. So you could I encourage people to do that. Me. Yep. All right. Ian, thank you so much. Thanks, Andy. Take care. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Ian Koniak, for sharing his insights and his story with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd appreciate it. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.